right, I'm going to read from Revelation 12, 13, or 12, 13 through 13, 18. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people great and small, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. All up here. Is my mic on? Okay, there it is. 
I'm sorry, I just have to laugh because that is quite the passage. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff, for the patient endurance and faithfulness that it took to both read and listen to that on the Sunday morning. Um, so I uh, just had to feel like I had to acknowledge that. But good morning. My name is Lydia. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio. Um, it's really good here to be with you this morning as we continue this bizarre and frankly scary journey through this book. Um, we are more than halfway through the book, y'all. So let's hear it. <laughs> we made it this far. Um, last week we got a bit of a break, uh, but today we get to pick up where Johnny left off last time in Revelation 12. Um, I just feel like I got blessed with the good stuff, right? Like, I get the beast, I get the number, like, this is all the revelation goodness. So, thanks, Johnny. Um, I'll warn you now, it's going to get a bit bible up in here. Uh, I know that I already have a penchant for getting very bible on you guys, but I feel like today truly warrants it because it is the strangest book in the Bible, after all, and it is a very strange chapter, so just buckle up. Um, but because it has been a minute, I thought we should probably review where we were um, since last time. Uh, so if you remember from two weeks ago, and we actually heard a little bit of it earlier, Revelation 12 is where we meet in John's cosmic drama, this dragon who goes to war with the angels, and he gets cast down to earth. And he's been in pursuit of this pregnant woman, and in particular her baby son, right? And then later, he goes on uh, in pursuit of the rest of the women's children, a woman's ch uh, children, who John tells us uh, are those who bear witness to the testimony of Jesus. So it's the people of God, right? And so then today we just heard read in Revelation 13 about two more beasts. And these two uh, beasts, along with the dragon, are going to round out this sort of evil, unholy, alternative trinity, as they're understood to be. So you've got the dragon in Revelation 12, and you've got, in Revelation 13, these two other beasts who derive their power from this dragon. Now, if you recall early in Revelation, earlier in Revelation, all the way back to chapters 4 and 5, John, in those chapters, is pulling back the curtain for us. And he shows us a glimpse of divine reality, right? And if you remember in those scenes, he's showing us a redefinition of power and of victory um, and conquering right? It's actually real power. And behind, in that behind-the-scenes moment, we see the throne room, right? We see God, the creator, who's co-reigning with Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, and their spirit, who forms and comforts and speaks to the churches. So this is the real trinity, the real deal. And together they are worshipped as the elders and the living creatures. If you remember, they're declaring that they're worthy of all honor and power and blessing and glory. So similarly here, in Revelation 13, John is also pulling back that curtain. But set the, except this time, what he seeks to expose is not divine reality, a true vision of power that we got to see in the throne room, but the enemies of that real power. The forces of evil who are hard at work behind the scenes trying to take down the lamb and the lamb's followers. And so while this story, which, you know, cracked me up reading it because it's just, it's so crazy, right? Um, even though we understand that this is a particular genre, this is a cosmic vision, it still sounds pretty wild to us, right? Um, we got a pregnant woman on the run and a baby snatched away and dragons and beasts from the sea and all that stuff. 
Um, as crazy as it sounds to us, it actually would have sounded rather familiar to John's original audience in the first century because it came from a very popular myth at the time. However, he wasn't just doing a straight-up copy. He added his own little twist to it. And so what he presents to us is sort of a remix of a very popular story that he then subverts for his own purposes. So he takes elements of this popular myth and he sort of interpolates them or works them into this story in order to expose the Roman Empire for what it actually is, which is a bad imitation of real power. Now, we can't possibly really appreciate the remix if we don't know the original, right? Like, that's kind of how all remixes work, in a sense. Um, or at least it's really it's difficult to appreciate it. And this actually reminded me of a situation recently um, when my husband and I were in our car with our three boys. So my sons are, are big fans of the song Panini by Lil Nas X, which you may or may not be familiar with. But we've been playing this a lot in our car. And one day as we were listening to it for, I don't know, like the 10th time or something, um, I think it was my husband who recognized, he was like, wait a minute, I know this chorus. This is from Nirvana. Like, I recognize this. And I was like, you're right, I think it is. We immediately switched over to Spotify and we put on um, Nirvana's you know, classic Nevermind, which ironically was a very popular album at the, t at the age my boys are now, when I was their age. Um, as we turn on Nevermind, we put on the song In Bloom, and sure enough, that is a remix. That is totally a reference to that song. And so we were really excited because we recognized it. And we were like, we played it a couple times with the boys. We were like, hear it? Like, ah, ah, this is it. And they were like, cool. Like, cool story, bro. Like, turn off this angry guitar and please put back our hip-hop. Um, which is a common theme now when I show them things for my youth, I gotta get used to the disappointment because they're always just like, it's never as meaningful to them as it was to me. Um, but I did follow up with this and discovered that we weren't the only ones to recognize the similarity in the song. Um, and it turns out, I think Kurt Cobain was actually issued like a credit like after the album came out. Um, but Lil Nas X claims he had never heard Nevermind before or the song in Bloom from which he totally ripped it off, off the melody, whatever. We'll never know the truth, I suppose. Uh, but while our boys, and apparently Lil Nas himself, have missed out on the genius of Kurt Cobain, lest we miss out on all the subversive genius of John and what the spirit might be saying to us today through this, this remix, I thought it'd be worthwhile to do a little quick deep dive, not even a deep dive, just a mere dip, a dip of the toe, a plunge, if you will, into the source material on which John builds this parody. So John is exiled on the island of Patmos. This is where he, this is all taking place. And close by to that island was another island called Delos. And it was very famous and well known to everyone in John's time as the birthplace of Apollo. And so as the story goes, which you may know, I didn't know because somehow this is one of those things I missed out on. I don't know why I miss Greek mythology. So I didn't learn this until like more recently. But as the story goes, uh, Apollo's mother had escaped to this island um, away from the dragon Python, who was trying to kill her um, and the baby, being the son of Zeus and all. He was, you know, their enemy. And so Apollo gets born on this island, and when he learns about this, um, eventually he travels to Delphi, where the dragon Python's lair is, because he wants to seek revenge for his mother and, you know, wants to take out the dragon. And so he does. He kills Python. 
And so it's this epic battle, which was recounted in many sources. Different versions of the story exist, different variations. Um, but it was very popular. And it's also depicted in a lot of paintings. I wanted to put one up, but I, I forgot. Uh, but it was a very popular uh, source for painting, like all the way up through like 18th century even. So anyway, here we go. We have this pregnant woman on the run from a dragon who wants to kill her baby. Feels like I just heard this, right? Uh, yeah, it's the same story as Revelation 12. But parallels to Revelation aside, what we hear more generally here is the story of a hero and an evil monster who wants to take down this hero who represents goodness and order and light. And he does so by attempting to kill the offspring, uh, the son, so that he can destroy all future hope of good, hope and goodness. Um, and then the son takes on the rebellious evil monster and kills him, good triumphs over evil, etc., etc. So people in the ancient world knew this story, but we know this story too, right? Like even if we haven't heard this particular version or you missed out on Greek mythology like I did um, in fourth grade, uh, you know this because myths and folklore, you know, pretty much everywhere around the world we have some kind of version of this story, right? And the story just runs deep in the human psyche, right? It's the human story. But the Roman emperors, as many political leaders do today, they love myth. And in particular, they love this story. And they also knew, again, as political leaders know today, that myth is very powerful, right? And if you can attach your story to an ancient myth that has such wide cultural acceptance, it can lend a sense of legitimacy and authenticity and, and timelessness to whatever your agenda is, right? And this is because we all know these stories, not necessarily because we've experienced them ourselves firsthand, but because we feel them in our bones. They're just deeply embedded in our cultural memory to the point where you don't even have to be consciously thinking about them in order to, like, conjure them up. Like, we have them in America, right? We have our own uh, sorts of stories like this, these myths. We have, you know, the American dream, uh, the pursuit of happiness, the promise of tomorrow, the myth of equality, right? And even though they may have been proven to be false or problematic or at best like an ideal that's like striven for but rarely achieved, like they still persist in the American imagination, right? And they have like a significant role in our policies and just our cultural identity in general. And so what the Roman emperors did is they cast themselves in the parts uh, of this important Greek myth. So Apollo was considered the, the primeval king, and so every emperor that thenceforth was like a new iteration of Apollo. The son of a god keeping the dragon, who is the enemy of ordering goodness, at bay with their perfect rule and reign of Rome. And so in order to perpetuate this myth, they put statues of themselves everywhere, right? In the likeness of a god. So Nero, whose mother also happened to be killed, um, very famously, probably the most, identified himself with Apollo. And so he, he really took this to heart. He, put, he erected himself uh, as, a as a statue in the form of Apollo. He minted coins with his image, which Apollo was also, like, played a liar, like, you know, and so he had a little a, a coin of him also playing a lyre, um, minted, so everyone had to use this, you know, currency, and so they saw that every day. Uh, but he believed he was, in, he was the new Apollo, and he was ushering in this golden age, 
hearkening back to the days of Apollo's like golden rule. So all of these things uh, rehearse this myth, this cultural myth for the Roman citizens so that the story that they told themselves as they walked around and saw these statues and as they used this currency every day, um, rehearsed the story sort of subconsciously. So they were telling themselves, the story they were telling themselves is like, I'm part of this like deeper cosmic myth this deeper cosmic conflict where good is triumphed over evil, thanks to those emperors. And my part is to simply worship and pay homage and tribute to this system, to this empire, to which I owe and we all owe our wealth and our success and our safety as a country. And so what John presents here, as crazy as it reads to us today, is simply a remix of a very familiar tale, one that was very well known to the audience of John's day, as being used in the service of the Roman Empire. So they weren't elbowing each other, being like, hey, do you think he's talking about Rome here? Like, do you think he means Nero? Like, they 100% got that. Um, they did not need any kind of apocalyptic decoder ring to understand who John was referring to. But what was new to them was the roles that they were playing, which side they were actually on. So the empire had cast themselves as the good guys, as the heroes, as the legends of the story. But what John is cleverly suggesting is that it's actually the reverse. So as one, one scholar put it, or like, like how he said it, he's like, the readers of John's day knew who the rulers were, but John is exposing them for what they were, which is the agents and embodiments of evil. So what John was, was doing is really rather subversive, which I always love it when the, the Bible writers get really, like, subversive and kind of, I don't know. He essentially says, let me take your myth that you love so much and from which you derive all of your power in the hearts and minds of your people and let me expose you for who you really are. An evil parody of God, the Lamb, and his spirit. You're not the heroes of this story. You're the beasts. You're the villains. Uh, now, I was, I was talking to my husband about my sermon and talking about this whole concept of parody of power. Um, and I kept using that term, and he stopped me, and he was like, you keep saying parody? And, like, I don't really understand what you mean. Like, when I hear the word parody, I think of, like, Blazing Saddles or, like, Spaceballs or the movie Airplane. Um, and I was like, fair point. Like, they're kind of like, the, you just think about spoof movies, right, when you hear the word parody. And so what I mean by parody isn't, like, a Mel Brooks movie. Um, but what I do mean is sort of like a spoof, a caricature, right? An imitation so bad that to mistake it for the original is, like, laughable. That's what I mean. And I couldn't think of a good example of this until I visited Las Vegas for the first time last weekend. Um, I had never been to Vegas before, and I truly only went because my very favorite comedian was playing there, but it was everything I thought it would be and worse. Um, no offense to you if you love Vegas. I know I have friends who love it. But it was super hot, of course, and it was super fake. Um, but what I didn't realize was that there was going to be all these, like, faux cultural landmarks everywhere. Like, that surprised me. Um, and some of them were pretty good in the sense that, like, I don't know, you couldn't tell if some of the structures were real or not, you know? Like, they weren't just, like, you know, fake buildings. I'm like, I think those were actual structures. But, yeah, there was, like, Fake Eiffel Towers, fake Trevi Fountain, fake Brooklyn Bridge. 
they're like fake castles. I mean, I guess, you know, Excalibur didn't really exist, but if it did, it wouldn't look like that. Um, but I, I thought about it, I was like, you know, it's, you know, it, it was hard to tell what was real or not, but, <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone's walking around and being like, you know, I've never seen Rome, but like, now I feel like I have, <laughs> right? Or like, oh, I've always, it's always been on my bucket list to see the Eiffel Tower, and, and now I don't feel the need to go to Paris because I've seen it here in Las Vegas. Um, and similarly, I don't think that Rome or Paris, like the tourism boards, are they're like, oh my God, they've got, they've got these structures in Las Vegas, like, oh, I'm so threatened, no one's gonna come real, see the real thing. Like, no one, they're not thinking that. Because what Vegas is, is a mere parody of the real thing. And so what John does here is present these, these scary things, these beasts, but he presents them as cheap but evil imitations of the real source of power, God and his kingdom. And so if we break it down, as many interpreters have done, we can see how the dragon and the two beasts represent a caricature of the Trinity. So we've got, we've got the dragon who, like God, takes this place in heaven, and he has this throne that he can bestow to other people um, and his power on other people. He's actually explicitly identified with Satan, um, the serpent from Genesis, um, so that kind of makes it easy, not too difficult there. But whereas the God, the creator, brings life and order, the dragon brings death and chaos, right? And like the dragon, these other two beasts also have their origins in the Old Testament, and the hearers and readers of John's letters uh, would have recognized this. So this first beast that comes out of the sea, um, they would have immediately thought, see, okay, sounds like Leviathan, this ancient sea serpent who had sort of scattered references in the Old Testament. You may have heard this. Um, but he's found in the Psalms. He comes up in Isaiah. Um, he's the enemy of Israel that Yahweh uh, vows to slay. Uh, ancient Israel had this notorious fear of the sea, uh, so historians think. They were never great shipbuilders like their neighbors, the Phoenicians, and so they were just like, I don't know what this massive liquid thing is, but it terrifies me, and all I know is that death is associated with it. Um, and so for them, the sea just represented utter chaos and destruction. And, and many ancient Near Eastern religions, uh, the sea was the cosmic backdrop for these like showdowns between good and evil. And so this Leviathan creature, the sea beast, uh, harkened back to some of their deepest, uh, darkest fears as a people. But then some of the, the beast's other features that we read about are also reminiscent of Daniel 7, this apocalyptic vision that Daniel receives about four beasts, and the four beasts represent different e uh, evil empires that will eventually be destroyed by the Ancient of Days, by God. But that fourth beast in particular, uh, he was supposed to be particularly br brutal and powerful. And so naturally, in John's day, when they were reading Daniel, they were like, that's Rome, right? This is obviously the Roman Empire. And so this composite image evoked both ancient and current fears for these people. And remember, you might remember, there's this interesting verse. It's in verse 3 of chapter 13. It mentions this uh, healed a fatal wound or this mortal wound found on one of the heads of the beast. So this was a not-so-subtle nod to Nero, um, or the Nero legend in particular, which was a very, like, a super popular belief floating around at the time um, that he had committed, uh, because he had committed suicide uh, by cutting his own throat, the first emperor uh, to do this, 
uh, but he was still alive and he was plotting his revenge, kind of like, you know, Tupac. So it's kind of like a Tupac rumor, like he's coming back, Nero will come back. So that's a reference to that. And so there would have been no doubt who would this beast with its wounded yet healed powerful head who, is, who had ensuing worshipers and a following, who that was riffing on. Because who else do we know was slaughtered, resurrected, and has a bunch of people following and worshiping him now? It's Christ, right? The slaughtered lamb who was raised from the dead and now claimed followers. But perhaps the most glaring feature of this Christ caricature was the manner by which the beast conquered. So unlike Christ, he rules by violence and the sword. And everyone was in awe of this particular brand of power, not because of its love and its sacrificial death, which is what the lamb represented, what we saw in Revelation 4 and 5, but because no one could stand against it. No one could even begin to dream of taking it on. And so few could resist worshiping it. So that's the sea beast. But then this land beast, this other beast, as you may guess, we've got the dragon, God the creator. We've got the sea beast, who's Jesus. This land beast, as you may guess, completes this sort of unholy trinity as a parody of the Holy Spirit and her prophetic work in the churches. So you might remember in that passage, it talks about bringing fire down. So like the prophet Elijah, it too brings fire down. But unlike the work of the Spirit in the churches, which promotes worship of the true God, it uses its theatrics to promote idol worship. You remember it talks about erecting this, uh, this idol for the people to worship. And rather than breathing, breathing life into the people, empowering them to go into the world and live in opposition to the empire and encourage faithfulness, the beast enslaves it, them to himself. And the only way that he grants them access to the marketplace is to, by accepting his branding. And you know, they mentioned, you know, regardless of class or status, you had to have this branding in order to, you know, go about your life. Your, this is your currency. So here we come to probably the most well-known but least understood part of all of Revelation, the branding, the numbers, 666. So much ink has been spilled, as they say, over these infamous numbers. But for our purposes today, the most important thing for us to know about them is that they represent, um, like this unholy trinity, a parody of divine power. They're a parody of perfection, actually. They're a counterfeit. Maybe even a better word for them would be like, I don't know, a, a cosmic joke or something. Because if, in, if seven in the Bible represents completion or perfection, or in Vegas represents a jackpot, bringing that Vegas reference back in, then 666 would have represented like utter, like massive failure, absolute imperfection. Like, ooh, so close and yet so far. Like you're just one off. Like and viewed in this way, it's not, it's not so much scary as it is kind of sad. Um, it's very Alanis Morissette, like 10,000 spoons and all you need is a knife. Like, ah. Uh, and again, not to quote Atlantis, but it is ironic, kind of, that we live in fear of these numbers. Like, there's so much dread associated with these numbers when they're really just a joke. They're laughable. So furthermore, the placement of these marks on the forehead and the right, the right hand 
um, if you remember reading that earlier. That is a clear reference to the Shema, the ancient Jewish prayer found in Je- Deuteronomy 6. You remember it's the one that begins, uh, listen or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone. Love, you shall love the Lord with all your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. You remember that? This is the most important prayer in all of Judaism. And its truth was so integral to who you were that you were to eat it, sleep it, drink it, talk, recite it when you wake up, recite it before you go to bed, tell your children, talk about it all the time. And bind it on your forehead or your, uh, your fore, forehand, I wrote forehand, forehead or your arm so that you never forgot it. And so the mark of the beast, this is sort of like an anti-Shema. So rather than bind you to the one true God, Yahweh, it bounds you to this beast. Rather than setting you apart for blessing, this branding would enslave you to the empire's economy. Okay, Whew. take a deep breath. I realize that this has been quite the historical and cultural context journey, but I appreciate you guys hanging in there with me. But I do think it's important to understand this background stuff, and not just because I think it's important for like our interpretation and it's the key to our interpretation, which I do think I strongly believe that, but also because what I think it does is that it underscores that what was true in Daniel's day, back with the Babylonians, was the reality in John's day, under the Roman Empire, was the reality of our day. Because just like in the ancient world, we today in 2021 are ruled by fear of the unknown, right? Just like Israel viewed the sea as utter chaos and destruction, we know, and perhaps for some of us better than we did a few years ago, that life is unpredictable and it's chaotic. And just like they did in the ancient world, our beasts mirror back to us our deepest fears, right? And so we become very desperate to tame those beasts. And so we look for any order or system that lets us believe that we have a measure of control over what happens to us. Such a longing and desire then creates a breeding ground for evil empires. Because that they, they know these fears exist, right? And they use them to manipulate us to enslave us to their systems, right? So for Rome, it meant swooping in and saying, hey, I'm your hero, like, trust me, bow to me, worship me, I will take care of you, just give me your identity, we'll put you in our little network, in our system, and you don't have to worry about a thing, we'll take care of it all. But this kind of powerful manipulation still exists, y'all, it does. I was recently listening uh, to a podcast that was investigating the wellness um, and supplement industry. And one of the things that they mentioned in that podcast was super interesting. It was saying how both Alex Jones, the far-right InfoWars guy, and Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress and founder of Goop, they actually hawk the exact same supplements, just with different branding. Because at the end of the day, they're still, they're just preying on people's fears, right? which take on different shapes depending on which side of the political or cultural or social spectrum that you fall on. But at the end of the day, they're both peddling a cure for people's fear, right? They want a sense of control while they laugh all the way to the bank with our money. 
there will always be some form of evil empire that presents itself as good and clamors for our allegiance. So just like the Roman empires co-opted the Apollo myth, casting themselves as the heroes, the defenders of order, and the victors over evil, the good guys, all evil empires will dress themselves in the lie that they are good and deserving of our deep trust, when in fact they're a counterfeit, they're a parody, a mere copy of the only true source of goodness and hope and peace, and that is of course, the gospel of Jesus, right? So the truth that John was trying to impart to them via this epic cosmic myth was not to fear this empire, right? John knows with every fiber of his being that the truth, the truth is the story will end like Revelation 4 and 5. The slaughtered lamb will win, right? But the thing about parodies, as I said earlier talking about Vegas, they're never in and of themselves a threat to the real thing, right? The only real threat that they pose is when they come to be viewed by people as the real thing. So what John is afraid of then is not the dragon or the sea beast or the land beast. He's afraid that the churches will believe the counterfeit over the real thing, that they'll fall prey to this unholy spirit and that they will mistake the false for the genuine. And this is the warning for us now. Like, as we've said repeatedly throughout the series, empire did not end with Rome. There have been countless iterations of it, not just talking about Russia or something like that. Any institution or nation or ideology or way of life becomes a beast when it claims godlike power over us as we willingly hand over our allegiance to it. We're just as susceptible as the people in John's day to being fooled into thinking we are worshiping the real thing, when in fact we're being enslaved to a system of empire. And so, I, Missy, I want to challenge you today with two questions as we head to the table. First one is, what are the parodies of power in your life? I know that sounds like a big question, but hopefully it makes somewhat sense. What are the things that are calling to you? What systems are tempting you? This first one, I can't answer for you, this, this question. But every last one of us in this room harbors fear. And no one in this room has the power to predict or control their lives, which means we are vulnerable to the temptation of evil empires who would love nothing more than to take us captive to their false gospel, to delude us into thinking that they can hand over the secret to controlling our beasts. Uh... Henry Nouwen, who I love so much, he talks about, he talks very famously um, about how we all fall prey to at least one, or maybe all, three lies of identity. And I have them up here, hopefully. One, I am what I have. Two, I am what I do. Or three, I am what other people say or think about me. And so many of us live enslaved by these lies, right? Myself included, for sure. We let these beasts mark us because they think their power will keep us safe, right? And depending on the lie, they mark us in different ways, right? So maybe if for you, the lie that you believe sometimes about your identity is that I am what I do, you allow yourself to be marked by whole hustle culture, just constantly going, hustling. 
Maybe for you it's, I am what other people say or think about me. The mark, the mark for you is image culture, right? Endlessly managing or curating your image to the outside world. But whatever it is, whatever shape it takes, so many of us are running around trying to achieve everything, acquire more and more, please everyone, and as a result, we're an anxious and we're desperate, exhausted, <laughs> narcissistic people. And we don't know who we are. We're in an identity crisis. And so the second question I have for you is, how do we resist this? And it's related to this first question of identity. The answer, I believe, lies in reclaiming our true identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, the good news, Masio, is that this is exactly why Jesus came, right? He came to share his identity with us and to show us that we are his beloved sons and daughters. And so this is the truth and the story that we need to rehearse. And why I believe in my bones that the sacraments are fundamental to our lives as believers. Communion and baptism, y'all, they are so much more powerful than we treat them. Like the Shema, they mark us for our identity and our calling. So baptism is simply not like just a milestone to take pictures or family time or anything like that, or even primarily to make a pronouncement of faith in front of our community. On the contrary, baptism actually tells us who we are and whose we are. And communion, similarly, is not just, you know, a sweet family time. And it can be. It could be a beautiful thing. I'm not knocking that. But it's not even that. It's, and it's not really a way to feel cleansed from the, week, the sins of the week before and like, oh, we get a fresh start, even though it can be that, you know. But communion, primarily, it reminds us of our call and our mission. As Walter Brueggemann says, um, we're not just floating out there on our own right? We're a people whose mission is subverting the dominant distortion of reality. And what an enormous call it is to work as an alternative to a social system just gone crazy. To live a different kind of life so that the world may come to know that the pathologies in which we all get caught, these lies, are not the truth of our life. So, Missio, would you join me in confession as we head to the sacrament of communion, where we head to the table as God's people? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess that we often fall victim to the competing empires that swirl around us. Jesus, we find it so much easier to trust in systems that make us feel like we're in control the spirit of truth remind us that we are your people. We are marked by your blessing, not by the empires of this world. As we come to your table, remind us as clear as it was to the, the people in John's day and the early church that forget Rome, forget all subsequent empires. We are citizens of your kingdom and our hope is in you. Empower us, Jesus to live a life worthy of our calling, as Paul says. In your powerful and matchless name we pray, amen.
this year, when you're ready, you can come to the table. Um, if you need prayer, we'll have someone from our prayer team over here in this corner who would love to pray with you.